Stanford is the Harvard of the West. Duke is the Yale of the South. Caltech is harder to get into than MIT. Each of these statements is an exercise in positioning, and positioning is one of the most important concepts in all of marketing. Stick around because on this week's episode, I'm going to break it all down explaining how this concept works so you can apply it to your own restaurant. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Each week we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. That means doing more covers and driving more revenue. We choose a topic, we pick it apart, we come up with some key insights, and then we finish up with an assignment. I always leave you with a short, actionable task, something you're going to be able to do right away to start implementing the concepts and ideas that we talk about here on the show, because as I say each and every week, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. If you like the show, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and make sure you're sharing these episodes with the people you work with. Changing the culture in your restaurant begins when you start letting them in, when you when you show them the kinds of things you're thinking about. So I want to take just one of the statements from that cold open and break it apart. Use it to make a larger point about how we can effectively use positioning to market ourselves. Stanford is the Harvard of the West. In seven words, I have simply and effectively told a prospective high school student exactly what I want them to know about Stanford. I've identified who my product is for, high achievers who are looking at an Ivy League education, and I've also identified who the product is not for, anyone below a certain academic threshold. The statement assumes a couple of things. First and foremost, that most people regard Harvard as this country's elite university, and it also assumes uh, that people know where Harvard is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The idea of positioning first came to light back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, there's a book uh, that was written in 1981 uh, called Positioning. Uh, of course, many people credit uh, advertising giant David Ogilvy with first having the idea, though the seeds of the concept can really be traced all the way back to print campaigns in the 1920s. And so for our purposes, it hardly matters who came up with it first. The bottom line is that positioning has become a crucial piece of modern marketing. And if you're not using it, you're missing out on a potent tool. So positioning is about understanding some important points about the human brain and how we process new information. Especially now, we're barraged with advertising all day long, right? We've got billboards and TV commercials and print ads and magazines and newspapers. we got banner ads online and takeover ads, plus all the ads that pop up into our uh, social media feeds. We see logos everywhere we look, and we're constantly being sold to. So when marketers try to introduce a new product, they know that their biggest challenge is to cut through all the noise out there. And to do that, they need to give the consumer a foothold. And that's where positioning comes in. You introduce consumers to a new product by setting that idea right next to something they already know. So 
Stanford has a couple of different approaches here, right? On, on the one hand, they could tout their accolades and accomplishments, highlight the resumes from their key faculty, talk about some of the prestigious schools within the university and the, and the variety of degrees they offer, or they can simply put their school next to Harvard in the minds of the students they wish to court. Now remember, way back in the beginning, we talked about those marketing pillars, identity, audience, competition, differentiation, and opportunities. That exercise was setting us up to have this conversation. So back in episode number four, I talked about how valuable it was to identify your competitors because it puts you in a category. And a category is a powerful thing because it gives the consumer some way to think about you and a vocabulary to use when talking about you. So Stanford is an elite American university based in Northern California. That is their identity. Their audience are high achievers. Their competition, at least in this positioning statement, are the Ivy League schools like Harvard, Princeton, Penn, Columbia, Yale. And through this statement, they have muscled their way into that category. Now remember, Marketing of the thing can't make up for the thing. You can't just tell people that you're a West Coast Ivy League school if you're not. Stanford has worked very hard to get where they are. They are a world-class university and have earned the right to this positioning statement. But as a marketing tool, the positioning statement is key and they can then use it to target a bunch of different groups. So maybe high achievers from the West Coast, right? Don't feel like going all the way out East? Stay here in California. Or maybe it's for East Coast kids looking for a big change, looking to get away from the life they've known. They are telling them that, hey, look, there's an alternative that you may not have considered before. Or maybe they're targeting kids who couldn't quite get into Harvard. Come here, it's basically just as good. The statement is a way of distilling down everything you're trying to accomplish as a brand. The positioning statement takes into account identity and audience and competition, and then it injects your name into the minds of the consumer. If they've never heard of you, now they have a way to remember you. Again, it's very hard for a consumer to retain new ideas. The best way to plant yourself into the mind is to set your idea right next to something they already know. Now, we're going to talk about this on another episode coming up, but the best way to win in a given category is to be first. The first to market advantage is well-documented. Those companies that truly innovate and create whole new categories uh, often rule for a long time. So think about Coca-Cola, Facebook, Amazon, eBay, Hershey's. For a long time, Hertz was number one in rental cars, largely because they were the first big company to the market. Famously, number two for a long time was Avis, who successfully positioned themselves for years with the tagline, we try harder. Implied in that was the idea that they were striving to soon be number one, so they go the extra mile for their customers. And while they never overtook Hertz, they have maintained a healthy market share and continue to be a very profitable company. Of course, these days, Enterprise is the number one car rental company in the world, but Hertz maintained their dominance for more than 100 years. And the story of Enterprise is for another episode coming up, I promise. Now, First to Market has three distinct advantages. Number one, you establish brand name recognition. Acetaminophen is the drug, but most people just call it Tylenol. Same with Kindle. It's actually an e-reader, but since Kindle is first, that's what we call it. And how about when people order a Coke in a restaurant? Not Pepsi. Number two, something called economies of scale. 
you get a longer learning curve to get things right, to make sure your manufacturing and distribution costs are economical. This will help you scale down the line while others are scrambling to catch up and learn the lessons that you've already learned. And then finally, number three, switching costs. Give the first mover a distinct advantage because once a customer has already purchased the initial product, it's often cost prohibitive to switch to a rival. So I think of camera brands like Nikon and Canon. Both are well-respected companies, but their lenses are not interchangeable. So if you start with a Nikon camera, chances are you're going to stick with Nikon for the duration of your career. Uh, Or with razors, right? You buy the handle and then you buy the blades. If you want to switch companies, you're going to have to buy the new company's handle. Easier than just to stick with the brand you've already got because you've already got the handle. Of course, most of us are not first to market with our restaurants. Even if we're innovating with the experience we're crafting, it's still just another restaurant. We're we're simply one more in a sea of hundreds or, or thousands of other restaurant options to choose from. That's why it's so important to identify a position. And to be clear, these positioning statements are merely internal. It's a way of communicating to everyone on the team so your staff understands what's trying to be accomplished. You then craft different ways to communicate that idea to your audience. So Stanford doesn't put that statement on their brochures, we're the Harvard of the West. Nowhere does it say that. But the idea will weave itself into every piece of communication they put out. And again, remember way back when we talked about the marketing pillars, we talked about opportunities. I said that every choice you make is an opportunity to communicate something to a prospective customer. So now go check out their websites, harvard.edu and stanford.edu. I've included both those links in the show notes if you don't feel like typing them in. So, So go, click through, take a look. You'll certainly see the similarities in how the two schools advertise themselves. As you read through, you'll see Stanford will often talk about their strict admissions requirements, operating under the assumption that people are already aware of how difficult it is to get into Harvard. They're basically saying, we're the same. By putting themselves into the Ivy League category, by aligning themselves with the other elite American universities through positioning, they have earned themselves a seat at that table. They can then use the rest of their time to talk about what sets them apart. So if you look through the brochures from both schools, they both tend to put their campuses front and center. It's a point of pride for both, but the architecture and the design could not be more different. So Stanford publishes a a picture of their campus, just like Harvard does, but it's got that Spanish colonial style with the stucco walls and the the low-pitched clay tile roofs. It is unabashedly California. So in one image, they accomplish two things. They show that they too have a beautiful campus just like the Ivies, except it's got its own unique West Coast identity. A student will do a little more digging and discover that the Stanford campus is right in the heart of Silicon Valley, minutes from Palo Alto and Mountain View, home to some of the most important companies in the world, including Facebook, Apple, and Google. They're surrounded by state parks tucked right between the Pacific Ocean and the San Francisco Bay, again, all key differentiation points from the East Coast schools that are mostly in urban environments. Positioning is not only the best way to introduce your brand to consumers, but I'd argue it is the only real way to establish yourself in a given market. Now, let's start bringing this closer to the food world. Seth Godin, who I talk about often, uh, he uses chocolate to make this point about positioning. He says, in the beginning, there was the Hershey bar, 43 grams of milk chocolate priced relatively inexpensively. Right now you can get one for about a buck. And for years, that was chocolate to most people. But then 
competition enters the market, right? And, and they use the Hershey bar as the anchor to establish a new position. So the Hershey bar was first released in 1900, and for a while that was it. Then in 1907, the company offered an alternative, a smaller product they called the Hershey's Kiss. Same great chocolate taste you've come to love, but in a smaller portion. You can imagine they did this as a way to reach new markets. How many people out there like chocolate, but don't want to eat an entire bar? Well, now there's an alternative, the little Hershey's Kisses. In 1928 then, Nestle looked at the market and decided to offer another alternative with the release of the Crunch Bar. So it was a milk chocolate bar, roughly the same size, 44 grams, but with another key difference. Each bar had crisp rice as well. So there was a crunch, there was texture. So for those of you who love milk chocolate but want a little something extra, the crunch bar is for you. Over the years, the candy market, specifically the chocolate bar market, has exploded. For those who want more than just chocolate in their bars, there came the Milky Way bar. And then in 1930, the Snickers bar. And then in 1932, the Three Musketeers bar. Lint chocolates eventually started putting out a high-end bar for those who were looking for better quality than just the traditional Hershey's bar. So here's a $3 bar of chocolate. And of course, just in the last decade, we've seen the rise of a bunch of new chocolate companies. Uh, Mast Brothers released an $8 chocolate bar featuring high design on the labels and a, and a variety of different styles. Sean Eskinozzi wove in social responsibility with his bars, so he works directly with the cacao farmers to ensure that, that they're compensated fairly for their products. If you care about where your chocolate comes from and, and want to make sure it was produced responsibly, uh, then go get an Eskinozzi bar. And then dandelion chocolate out in San Francisco started featuring single origin cacao beans. So almost like a single vineyard uh, wine, uh, all the beans come from a specific location uh, and a specific vintage. They're harvested together, then roasted, refined, and made into bars all at once. Now, one is not necessarily better than another, right? Okay, perhaps some use higher quality ingredients or, or there's more care taken in the process, but they are simply different from each other. Remember, if you're a kid with only a couple of bucks in your pocket, a $9 dandelion chocolate bar is not better than a Hershey bar. In fact, to that consumer at that moment, the Hershey bar is the preferred choice because it's the one they can afford. This idea of positioning is used every day, all day long, by just about every major company in the world. And now that you're aware of it, you'll start seeing it everywhere. But to really hammer home the idea, I want to do a few more of these positioning exercises, and then we're going to take everything we're learning and apply it to the restaurants. So let's move over to the car industry, right? Something iconic we all know, the Corvette. When GM debuted the car in 1953, they wanted to compete with the, um, with the popular European sports cars of the day. And their tagline, I think, could double as their positioning statement. The Corvette is America's sports car. To this day, they still use that line because it works. It still speaks to the position, to the, the position they're looking to, uh, to hold. Let's look at sodas. Coca-Cola is obviously the original. They were first to market and continue to hold a strong market share over Pepsi. And for years, Pepsi struggled until they started positioning themselves differently with their ads that said, the taste of a new generation. And just like that, they made a classic soft drink come off as old and out of step. Pepsi was positioning themselves as young, hip, and trendy, a position they've held now for decades, even though they don't use that, that phrase anymore, the taste of a new generation. 
Just think of how they've fortified that impression over the years with their partnerships with Madonna, Britney Spears, David Beckham, Beyonce, now Cardi B. Alcohol brands also do this to great effect. Often in this genre, advertisers use lifestyle positioning. The best example of this is the Corona ads where a couple sits on some tropical white sand beach with crystal clear water and just a couple of chilled bottles of Corona beer between them. It's aspirational selling, and it's been one of the most successful TV ad campaigns of the last 30 years. Again, it's about positioning the brand. Apple. Apple continues to reestablish their position with each new wave of products they release, but the ones that most succinctly illustrate my point ran from 2006 to 2009, right? With a hip young guy, the actor Justin Long, standing beside a stuffy old middle-aged white guy. The ads were dubbed, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC. It perfectly identified and synthesized the company's position in the market against other um, PC giants like IBM and Microsoft. So, colleges, chocolate bars, sports cars, soft drinks, beer, computers, each one shows how to successfully position yourself in the market. And yes, most of these companies have big budgets to work with, but the lessons are free and we have the luxury of learning those lessons and applying those lessons to our own businesses. So how do you do it? How do you position your brand? Well, I'm going to direct your attention back to the early episodes. Episode number one, where we came up with a definition for marketing, and then episodes number two through six, where we talked about the five marketing pillars. I'm once again including a link to the Marketing Pillars Workbook. It follows along exactly with those early episodes to help you gain a better understanding of your product. You can go uh, find the link in the show notes, download that, uh, and work through it. Uh, And that's the key, right? You go through each of those five areas and figure it out for your restaurant, right? So number one, your identity, meaning what is the product you're selling? Number two, you identify your audience, figure out who needs the product you're selling. Number three, who are your competitors? Who else has a product aimed toward the same audience? That's how you figure out a category. uh, And that's a key step in figuring out how to position yourself. Number four, differentiation is where we figure out what sets us apart from our competitors. Or in the case of a new restaurant, you're going to come up with an angle, right? What, What are some ways you can differentiate yourself? And then finally, number five, opportunities. You got to realize that every choice you make is an opportunity to communicate with your prospective customers. So I told you we were going to bring it back around to restaurants. I want to do that now. Let's look at sports bars here in New York City. We've got a million of them. And in order to succeed, they have to position themselves one way or another. One way to do it is to use Name recognition, right? So right in the heart of Times Square, there is Buffalo Wild Wings, and they win over a bunch of people, a bunch of tourists usually, because they've got a brand name that people recognize. They're counting on that, and they succeed because of that. Now, a block away from Buffalo Wild Wings is a place called Tonic, uh, which I used to love going to. It's multiple floors, tons of TVs, dozens of beers on tap, and a, and a pretty decent menu. The tourists may not wander in, but that's fine because it mostly caters to New Yorkers. Other bars then position themselves towards fans of certain teams. So this works because New York is home to so many transplants. People come from all over the country, all over the world, really. So they need a place to connect with other fans like them. So my brother went to school at Michigan, and uh, he and his friends used to go to Professor Tom's down in the East Village to watch games on Saturday afternoons. 
Kettle of Fish in the West Village is a Packers bar giving home to cheeseheads now living in New York City. Uh, are you a supporter of Liverpool? You can watch all of the Premier League games uh, for Liverpool at the 11th Street Bar in the East Village. There are Steelers bars and Eagle bars and Badger bars and on and on. It's another way to position yourself in a town that's packed with sports bars. Boxers is a gay sports bar with two locations, one in Chelsea and another one in Hell's Kitchen. They have identified an underserved market and are packed every single night. Uh, Break Bar out in Queens has 14 pool tables and a couple of ping pong tables. Banter is a soccer-only bar located in Williamsburg. Again, all of these places have successfully positioned themselves in a saturated New York market. With all of these choices, you have to find a way to set yourself apart. These places are succeeding because they have done that. And the same is true in any category if you want to set yourself apart and really thrive. Now, in a small town, maybe it's good enough just to be a good sushi restaurant. But here in New York, we have tons of sushi. Why would I order from you instead of the place I usually go to? Especially as we come through this crisis, I think people are going to be very tight with their money. They aren't going to spend their money on just anything. You have to supply them with a reason why they should come spend their money. That is what positioning is all about. Why should we go out tonight? Because I've been craving the thrice-cooked bacon from Mission Chinese. Why should we go to BLT Steak instead of Peter Luger's? Because I love the Gruyere cheese popovers they serve there. Why should we go to Gramercy Tavern this weekend? Because I've missed the smell of the wood-fired stove in the front bar room. All great restaurants have an identity, something that sets them apart from other restaurants in the area. The key is to lean into that, to magnify that, and broadcast that to your audience. Again, People are remarkably bad at remembering new information. Positioning is about putting a new idea right next to a known idea. Why should we go to Croatia for vacation? Well, because it has a very similar history and terrain to Italy. It's really beautiful culture and landscapes, but at a fraction of the price because it's not nearly as popular of a tourist destination. You communicate your position in a variety of ways to your potential customers. Your assignment then this week is to craft your positioning statement. And think of it this way. Let's say you meet up with someone at a high school reunion and they know nothing about the restaurant industry. You tell them you own a restaurant and they say, oh, that's great. Tell me about it. Your positioning statement is the way you answer them. So I gave the example a few weeks ago about one of my clients. Uh, it's called Oxido here in New York City. They're a fast, casual Mexican concept like Chipotle, but with fresh gourmet ingredients. So that's what I would tell my old friend at the high school reunion. It sets the new idea, in this case, Oxido, next to a known idea, Chipotle, and then the rest of the statement shows how we're positioning ourselves against the existing known brand. I want you to do that with your brand. Figure out how to quickly and concisely communicate your position. And that's it. That's the crash course in positioning. Remember, the first to market is almost always the winner, but since a restaurant is not an innovative idea, you're almost always going to be coming into an existing market. Unless, of course, you're moving to some Pacific island filled with restless natives who have never heard of a concept of, of a restaurant, then congratulations. In that situation, I guess you are going to be first to market, so do whatever you want. But for the rest of us, we will need to properly position our brand to have the best chance at success. If you have any questions about today's topic, please do get in touch. Chip at chipclose.com. That's C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E.com. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. All the best to you and your families during this difficult time. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you next week. <music>